1: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today?
0: You're not interested in art? No.
1: Now, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to
0: have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempenar. And I'm Josh Larson.
0: Amity Island has long been known for its clean air, clear water, and beautiful white sand beaches. But in recent days, a cloud has appeared on the horizon of this beautiful resort community. A cloud in the
1: shape of a killer shark.
0: Wait, 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 wait. Did they close Amity
1: Island because of a cloud in the shape of a killer shark? We recently revisited Jaws, Josh, and you might be due for another one. (gasps) This week on the show, we hit the shore for our top five movie beach scenes. A top five that takes us to the white sands of Hawaii, Mexico, L.A., France, and more
0: plus the second film in our World of Wong Kar Wai Marathon, 1990's Days of Being Wild. That and more. Once more unto the beach, dear friends. Oh boy. Ahead on Film Spotting. Henry V is on my list.
1: Welcome to Film Spotting. Last week, we caught up with the debut from Hong Kong auteur Wong Kar Wai, 1988, As Tears Go By, the first movie in our world of Wong Kar-wai marathon this week the marathon continues with 1990s 60s set days of being wild do we get a step forward even here josh i don't know one thing i think we should talk about is does
0: this feel more like a debut than as tears go by to you hmm. i don't know we'll have to dig into that we will dig into that later in the show first though it's our top 5 beach scenes Otherwise known as our Annette Funicello oeuvre
1: view. Do you prefer muscle beach party or beach blanket bingo, Adam? Oh, I'm definitely a beach blanket bingo guy. Good choice. This top five is inspired by the movie that we could be seeing right now as we're recording. Mm-hmm. We instead chose to tape this show, but we could be watching and then ultimately reviewing M. Night Shyamalan's beach set, Old. It's new to theaters this weekend. You watched a lot more NBA finals than I did. How many times did you see the old trailer? Oh, my goodness. But between that
0: and the at and uh, Everybody Gets the Deals commercial, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think those were the only two we got. It was enough, Adam, to pummel the interest in old out of me, but I'm still intrigued. So
1: I might catch up with it. I should be intrigued. It's Shyamalan. And not only that, the cast is Gail Garcia Bernal, Vicky Kreps, Thomas and That's a formidable trio right there. And yet I am so out on this movie. And no, I can't explain to you why I just do not want to watch it, Josh. You, you are no part me. of this. You no can't can't part of me. this. <laughs> okay, fine. Instead, yes, we're going to do our top five beach scenes. And there are some prominent titles that as you hear that topic may spring to mind, and you would think there's no way they could overlook these films, right? These are iconic beach scenes, and you wouldn't be wrong, but the movies are so iconic, they're actually in the film spotting pantheon, which means we deem them ineligible for top five inclusion. So you heard Jaws at the top of the show? Can't do it. Apocalypse Now? Smelling napalm in the morning? Nope. Nope. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, The Big Lebowski, The Tree of Life, and even the Billy Wilder movie, Josh, that only the really diehard longtime film spotting listeners have a conspiracy theory about Some Like It Hot, a movie that at one point, supposedly, in the film spotting pantheon, and then we switched to a new website, and curiously, it disappeared.
0: (laughs) It's a very well patrolled pantheon apparently that we have here
1: that those shenanigans were way before my time so i had no part That is in true it. that is true now despite all of those titles being thrown out being excluded there were so many great beach scenes to choose from was that your experience as well oh totally so before i even jump to my into my list i'm
0: going to mention a couple of obvious picks to me and why i set them aside because yeah The options here were limitless. So, yeah, right away, some listeners might be thinking The Piano. Jane Campion's got to be on Josh's list, but I've talked about The Piano a fair amount. Top five back-to-back movies, show 796. Jane Campion was on my list there. Top five movies of 93. It's my number one movie. And, Adam, as you well know, we're doing a Campion overview. It's coming up. So on the you're show.
1: putting the filmmaker who we're going to do an overview series on coming up in your penalty box. That's a good way to put it. Yes, okay.
0: thank you. Fair so enough. penalty box for the piano. How about the Black Stallion, my number 1 horse scene? This is back to 2018 we did. <laughs> wow, we had top 5. <laughs> Remember that one? Uh, <laughs> you you wonder why we don't do top 5s as often as we used to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that scene for me was the stallion running on the beach. Of Perfect. Course. For this list. But I can't use it again. I'm Nobody a professional, would know. Adam. Nobody well, would know. that's probably true as well. But, you know, I have my standards, so I set those two aside. So those two obvious Josh picks, Piano Black Stallion, they're not going to be on my list. So what is? Let's start number five here. Jane's Dance from Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. So 1962... The wild psychological thriller with Joan Crawford and Betty Davis as sisters. Hollywood has-beens, they're cooped up together in a Beverly Hills mansion where they pretty much torture each other psychologically and otherwise. We barely leave the house until this final scene at the beach. And it's interesting, Adam, I can't wait to see your list and find out how many of your beach scenes are finales, climactic moments at a beach, because my number one is one of these, and a number of the scenes I considered were, I don't know, maybe there's something about the fact that once you reach the water, you can't go any further. So filmmakers are kind of, you know, tapping into that to conclude their movies on the Mm -hmm. beach. We'll see what happens with our list. But here in whatever happened to baby Jane, everything comes to a head on the beach. I'm going to try not to spoil it too much. Old movie, I know, but for those who haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah. That would include me. Remember. Okay. So I'll just say, At this point, things have turned shockingly violent between the sisters, and Davis's Jane has dragged Crawford's Blanche, who throughout the movie has been paralyzed from the legs down due to a car accident years earlier. She's dragged her to the ocean on a beach that holds sentimental value, I'll just say, for Davis's Jane. Secrets are revealed. Confessions are made. I don't think you can say there's really much reconciliation. And then when the police arrive, they've been looking for Blanche, a dazed Jane barely answers their questions. Instead, she notices that because of the spectacle they're making, this crowd has gathered around her and she begins to dance for them as she did when she was a child star. So what does the beach add to this? Well, that end of the line feeling that I mentioned earlier, I think that's here, obviously. But also there's something about putting Jane's dance in this setting that makes it seem even more unhinged. And the director robert eldrick, he he cuts to these, dizzying POV shots from Jane's perspective at times. And that captures her spinning, but also the gawking faces of the onlookers who are there at the beach. They're just wearing bathing suits and sunglasses. They can't believe what they're seeing here. And they even back away from her a little bit as if she's dangerous. So Jane thinks she's on stage, but they're just seeing some weirdo wander down the beach and it's sad. It's creepy. It's unnerving. Ah, uh, like most of the movie, really, and it all culminates here, right by the ocean. So that's my number five, Jane's dance. Whatever happened to Baby Jane?
1: Alas, I can't applaud you, or criticize you for your pick because, as I suggested, whatever happened to Baby Jane? Still a blind spot for me, despite the fact that we did a Betty Davis marathon in the not too distant past here on the show, and we tried to get it into some film spotting family bonus content over. Yeah, on that's Apeon. right. It was in contention there, and yet it did not win the vote. One of these days, Josh, I will see whatever happened to baby Jane. In terms of approaching this list, of course, as with all top five lists, I thought about just how much I appreciate the movie overall, but I did think about how crucial this scene is to the movie, and if the beach itself isn't significant just in terms of a landscape— Of course, I thought about how the filmmakers ultimately utilize it. And then if none of that worked for me, I did, of course, just consider whether or not this scene happened to be one that was iconic in all of cinema history. You asked about movies that may have made my list that were endings. I have one beginning and I do have only one ending, though I have a bunch of honorable mentions and a bunch of titles I definitely considered for the top five. That were ending. So I think you're on to something. And my one ending is my number five, one of the iconic cinema scenes. And if you disagree, you know what I'd call you? A maniac. Oh boy. Are we gonna get a little massacre theater here? No, I <laughs> unfortunately cannot pull off a Chuck Heston, but it is the big reveal. Charlton Heston as Taylor on the beach of the Planet of the Apes from 1968. Yes. It should be. I haven't seen this movie in a long time, but it should be at least a semi-triumphant ending. Taylor has finally succeeded in confronting the apes with the truth about humans predating them. He's talked about their technology. He's proven that he comes from another planet, but he has to know more. He's got to seek more answers to determine what really happened to his people on this planet. And it's him and the woman Nova, played by Linda Harrison, and they're riding on the horse, literally riding off into the sunset on the beach. But Jerry Goldsmith's Oscar-nominated score clues you in that the story really isn't ending here, and that something is amiss. We see, finally, as they trot along the beach, we see the steel. And then Taylor in the distance. And then he goes on, he continues down the beach, and the camera then slightly, kind of slowly pans to the left, showing the spikes of the crown. And Heston is framed right between them in the center, stunned, defeated. And of course he says, Oh my God.
0: I'm home. All the time. We finally really did it. You maniacs, you blew it up. Ah damn you God damn you all the hell.
1: And after that outburst. He kneels in the sand and what should be this kind of idyllic vision, the water gently rolling up against him there, the camera pulls back to then finally fully reveal the bust of Lady Liberty. It is just one of the best twist endings ever. And I was reading a little bit about it today or trying to do a little research and consider kind of the impact of that ending, what it might've been like for people in 1968 to watch it or anyone who sees it for the first time. And actually what I came across that struck me was a 50th anniversary consideration in Newsweek back in 2018. And I don't have the energy or the time to do the research to refute or to validate the overall take of this writer who basically says that in the sixties and seventies, which were Considered And are still considered this high watermark for American cinema, as he puts it. Basically, movies, at least mainstream movies, more and more have gotten away from actually reflecting society back onto itself. They're not willing to really kind of reflect the hopelessness and despair. So he says now 2018, when this writer is writing, suicide rates have soared, income inequality is rising, huge segments of the population feel and are alienated from the government and the economy. He says despair is killing us, but movies, they have gotten more and more away from that and just want to push hope. And the only place you can find real hopelessness is in indie films or the art house. That seems pretty reasonable to me. And he says this about the planet of the apes movies no longer reflect us, but condescendingly coo hope, hope hope to an American society collectively growing more depressed, alienated and anxious. The sound of the word hope becomes cloying and its repetition grows more strained in our ears. By comparison, a little dose of hopelessness would be refreshing planet of the apes remains remarkable today on its 50th anniversary for a number of reasons, but the rarity of its despair, The clarity of its final stark realization is something too few movies are willing to offer us anymore. Yeah, the filmmaking in that
0: scene really drags out the reveal um, in a way that works. You know, as you described, uh, Franklin Schaffner, the director, um, with giving us just those
1: hints of this metal structure. And we're not sure what it is. And keeping us away from Taylor. Yeah. uh, Keeping us at a distance so we don't really know how he's processing it. Totally. And then,
0: you know, we zoom a little closer mm-hmm. in towards him. So it's just a great way to pull off a twist ending. And then, yeah, you've got Heston just... I mean, when you're when you're going that big, you can't even criticize it, right? It's just, it's impenetrable, that sort yes. of performance. <laughs> so it's a great moment. All right, my number four is another ending, and it is the seaside silhouettes in Daughters of the Dust. We discussed Adam Julie Dash's 1991 dreamy period drama as part of our Overlooked Auteurs Marathon. I think it was just last year. For those listeners who didn't play along and haven't seen the film, it's set in 1902 on an island off the coast of Georgia, introduces us to a community of African-Americans whose earlier generations were enslaved their isolation here on this island has allowed for this culture that is still really deeply attuned to their African ancestors. And the narrative proper, such as it is, as I said, it's a very dreamy film, but the narrative proper kind of hangs on this family reunion taking place on the island just before some of the family members move up north. Now, like a movie like Dunkirk, say, almost the whole thing takes place on the beach. Sometimes we're in the interior of the island, but so much is on the beach that the whole movie could be my pick. But I'm going to go with the ending. And this is a reprise of sorts, um, a revisiting of another instance earlier in the film where three of the women in this clan are walking together on the beach. And it's a peaceful moment. They're sharing some freedom, some leisure. They have it to themselves. Um, This time, however, at the very ending of the film, The sun, sparkling on the ocean, casts them again in silhouette. And it makes them, to me, even more of mythical figures than they were before. Uh, And then we hear some of the voiceover narration from The Unborn Child, played by Kylan Warren. This is the mystery figure we've seen scampering throughout the film. We remain behind, growing older, wiser, stronger. So the three women pass from left to right, across, and then eventually off the screen. We're just left with this glistening waterfront as we listen to the unborn child. And then I love the touch. Again, the melding of of fantasy and reality, dreams and history. The child herself, this unborn child, runs past across the screen in silhouette after them. So it's a beautiful, haunting, final image, inexplicable in a lot of ways, but I think you could describe a lot of Daughters of the Dust mm-hmm. like that. And it's just crucial to me that this is set on the beach, is set in this in-between place. It's it's not quite the United States of America. It's clearly not Africa. It's just this in-between place, which is where this family and these people have lived and and have created this community. Um, And it's unlike any
1: other place. And we get to spend some time there through this movie. Beautiful and haunting is the way to put it. A movie that will linger with you. Many images that will linger with you. And I think you're right. The ending is one of the standouts. My number four is going to be One of my happier picks, maybe my only happy pick. I was just talking about Planet of the Apes and praising it for being unflinching in its sense of despair and its hopelessness. And when you think of the beach, normally, Josh, we think of it as this place for fun. It's all about having fun near the water, on the sand. And yet, as I looked over the movies that were in contention for my top five, for whatever reason, I was gravitating towards movies that were a little heavier. I knew I needed at least one where there wasn't anything hopeless or depressing or ominous about it. And my number four is the, this is our land sequence from Wes Anderson's moonrise kingdom. The scene Love in which Sam and Susie claim the beach for their own rename it. And yes, you have to appreciate this because normally you're the one who is fawning over Wes Anderson during our top fives. It's my turn now. Sam and Susie, they've been on the run almost the whole time. They actually don't really know each other that well. And not only do they get to finally take this break in this space that feels to them misguidedly isolated as if it really is their own and maybe they're they're untouched and unspoiled and no one's going to find them there. It's where they actually really get to know each other and get to be really bracingly honest with each other. It actually reminds me of the whole woods sequence from Terrence Malick's Badlands, except actually really sweet. Just the opposite (laughs) of that whole sequence with Spacek and Sheen in Badlands. The only thing it has in common with Planet of the Apes is a great use of zooms. We get those close-ups that start far away from each character as they are about to dive into the water from opposite rocks. And then the tracking shot to the right, Across the beach, Susie posing for Sam, who is drawing her. They're both in their underwear. We see their clothes drawing on the line at the start of that shot. Of course, it culminates with the dance to La Tem de L'Amour. It includes their first kiss and a little bit more than their first kiss. But the bulk of it, of this seven-minute sequence, is just them talking to each other. And in one kind of two- or three-minute portion, this shot, reverse shot, where they're perched up on high, and occasionally Anderson cuts to a shot where we see their makeshift home and the tent down by the water on the beach beneath them. And we're going to talk about Wong Kar Wai in a little bit. It's Wong-esque in its intimacy, the use of close-ups there in that shot, reverse shot. And with that intimacy comes some real vulnerability. I love the way Sam admits that he may wet the bed later. Which catches oh, you so, so off guard, and Susie's, of course, is so just reassuring and yeah, understanding and non judgmental. And that kind of sets up then a moment where she confesses something, and he tries to walk the line where he doesn't want to judge her, but he also can't help but be brutally honest with her. I always wish I was an orphan, most of my favorite characters are. I think your lives are more special. And there's that long pause. I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. And there's that pause then again before her response where she says, I love you too. The kind of crackle in her voice, the uncertainty in her voice, I read is not a lack of love for him or a sense that because he has said that to her and maybe been mean to her in that moment that she doesn't love him equally. But I think it's just a reaction that's a little bit stunned first at hearing, I love you. I think it's the first time they've said that to each other. And she is having a worldview or part of her worldview question. And I think she is stunned by it. Again, not, by the act of questioning, but what it makes her consider about something she just sort of says so off the cuff and easily. And I think she realizes in the moment that she really, truly doesn't understand and that Sam is right. And that's what that scene is all about, is them really coming together and understanding who each other are. Apparently, did a little research. If you want to visit that scene, stage your own little romantic getaway, you can go to Rhode Island's Fort Weatherall State Park. It's at the southern end of Conanicut Island. I can't believe the Larson clan hasn't visited there, Josh. (laughs) And I will also throw in that I did just rewatch this film, as you and some listeners may recall, back in May 2020 with my kids during quarantine. My two oldest, we watched all of Wes Anderson's work except actually we still haven't watched The Darjeeling Limited. So we're not complete us. Yeah, we didn't complete it. We need to do that. And I tweeted... Afterwards, that there's a world where Moonrise Kingdom might be Wes Anderson's best film, and it might be this one. And I even use that gif of the zoom shot of each of their faces across the water before they jump in. I have always been a fan of this movie, and that rewatch last year just further confirmed that.
0: Yeah, obviously I love it. I, I I don't know if it's his best, but I think it's his best counter to those who say that his movies are emotionally distant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this one just <laughs> aims right for the heart, I feel like, and hits it. And especially in this scene. And as far as a beach goes, you know, the setting is so crucial to, yeah. It's this it's not just a beach, it's a cove. That's right. It. So it's this That's, it it's encloses this, them. Yes. That's what exactly. makes them feel like
1: it's theirs and that they're totally. Safe.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So why wasn't it on my list? All I can say is I couldn't choose between this and the uh, life aquatic beach invasion, which is totally different tone. <laughs> maybe not quite as emotional, but still mm-hmm. uh, maybe the bit that I laughed the most at in the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. So couldn't pick. So I thought I'd set those aside. All right. My number three pick my number three beach scene is walking into the sea from portrait of a lady on fire. We spilled Much praise on Celine Sciamma's period love story between a woman painter and her subject in 2019. It was my number two film of the year that year. Well, here's some more praise. As much of it takes place on the Brittany coast of France, where the two women take many walks, they share some of their most intense stares there, I just had to consider it for this list. And there are a number of scenes to choose from, but I'm going to go with Eloise walking into the sea. Now, this is after Marianne, the painter, played by Naomi Merlant, she confesses to Eloise, played by Adele Hanel, that she isn't just a companion who's been hired by Eloise's mother to take these walks with her. But in fact, she's actually been painting this portrait on the sly for the mother. And we learn that previously Eloise has resisted being painted. Basically, she knows her mom is trying to use these portraits as marriage bait, and she wants no part of that. So this revelation, it reveals betrayal really on a number of levels. And when Eloise hears it and receives it, she responds by saying she's going to bathe, and she walks determinedly into the sea. Now, A Portrait of a Lady on Fire, it nods to a couple of feminist masterworks here and there, and this one is a reference to, as I read it, the tragic ending of Kate Chopin's The Awakening. And although Sciam's movie doesn't end here, that reference, it kind of marks the moment as a very significant turn in their relationship, in um, Eloise's decision for how she's going to move forward, and the ocean, the beach... You know, it's really a haunting presence throughout this film. It pervades the movie and echoes through the scenes that are not set on the beach. A listener, Laura O'Connor on Twitter, she's Laura underscore O, commented, the sound design of the waves morphing into the sound of a paintbrush on canvas, perfection. And I think you really do feel that. This is a setting that is always there even when we leave it. And it's so crucial to the emotional tenor of Portrait of
1: a Lady on Fire. So that is my number three. I was actually grateful to find out early on when you said that this was going to make your list that then I could put it aside only because my recollection of the movie is that you have so many great scenes to choose from. All of yeah. these walks along the shore there, not just the scene you picked. That movie really is so great. My number three is my one movie opening. And I said I was going to get back to picks that were a little more on the dark side. Well, it doesn't get any more ominous or depressing or hopeless than playing chess with death. It is the opening of Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. Now, of course, this is an art house film not seen... By the same audiences who saw *Planet of the Apes*, but I think equally iconic and often parodied over the years, that beach in its black and white is very craggy, very rocky. It's it's not at all like Moonrise Kingdom. It doesn't feel very hospitable at all. And you've got Max von Sydow's knight, who seems so worn and so tired, but it still is peaceful. It's still a spot to rest. And then we get that cut. And I love the reveal, the fact that the knight von Seidau sees him first and talks to him first so that it builds up a little bit of suspense as we wonder who he might be talking to. And then when it does cut, we are not disappointed because we see that figure head to toe in black, except for that pale face of Banked Ecorat playing Death. And I mentioned the parodies of it, as serious as this scene is, it almost parodies itself. The smirk on Death's face the whole time. There's a part where he says, well, I am a pretty good chess player. <laughs> you know, at first he's, he's not going to give in to this little trick, right? And then he's like, well, I'm, I am pretty decent. Maybe I'll play. And then he's got another really good line, too. And it's this great kind of subtle cinematic moment where he basically goes in for the kill. He puts his cloak up. With his right arm, and he starts to move toward the knight, and the camera then cuts to behind him. It's a match cut on the cloak going up in the air. And we only see the knight then revealed now from a new angle, from the point of view of death, as the cloak goes down. And of course, the knight says, Wait a second. And his brilliant response is, So they say, but I don't reconsider. How many times has he heard? wait a second. <laughs> and he's never probably reconsidered before, but here he does because he's a pretty good chess player as they sit to play, they face each other and now we get a new shot where the camera shows them in the foreground and the water is just in the background and I'm not sure if it's a lens choice or another type of effect. I wasn't really able to do any research on it, but the water seems like it's kind of right on top of them when they're playing chess, almost like they're floating in it. And It just adds this touch of otherworldliness that I think is perfect for the scene, obviously, is this supernatural figure and this knight who has led this harsh existence that's been really surrounded by death. They come face to face. Now, I haven't seen this movie in a long time, so I don't know if it's clear that it's the same spot or if it just turns out to be the same place where they did shoot it. But the end of The Seventh Seal is also iconic, that dance of death up the cliff that was shot at that same beach where that opening scene playing chess with death takes place.
0: Yeah, but it's interesting, even as an opening scene, this idea of the the beach or where the land meets the water being mm-hmm. an endpoint works, right? Yep. Because this is, this is the final confrontation here, even though that's where Bergman is beginning his movie that that's where he wants us to start so it makes sense that it is at the beach all right I don't like sand Adam it's coarse I don't like rough Uh and irritating but I am enjoying our lists we'll share our final beach scenes when we come back plus review Wong Kar-Wai's days of being wild and play a little massacre theater stay with us
1: Monsieur le Président, est-ce que vous pouvez nous dire quel sera le premier prix Can you tell me which price is the first price Yes, I can. Mais mm-hmm. <laughs> oui. Cool. <laughs> the film that won the Palme d'Or to town. Wait, 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 le <laughs> film qui a reçu la This is where I make my La La Land joke again, right Josh I suppose. Welcome back to Film Spotting, that was Spike Lee. Jury president at this year's Cannes Film Festival prematurely announcing the winner of the fest's big prize, the Palme d'Or. And that was Melanie Laurent with the shocked wait, wait. Now, I, first of all, feel like Spike Lee can do whatever he wants. But <laughs> second, <laughs> this is the first time I've actually heard how it played out. I didn't watch it. I saw it all play out on Twitter, but I didn't watch for myself partly because I thought it would just embarrass the hell out of me. And you know how I feel about any kind of award show, Josh. So I just avoided it. But now as I look at it and I look at it on paper, what was said, Spike Lee was asked, can you tell me which prize is the first prize? And I can reasonably understand why he thought, well, first prize is the top prize. I'll name the Palme d'Or winning Titan directed by Julia Ducourneau. That isn't what she meant, though, was it, Josh? No, I'm I'm with you. I'm perfectly willing to give Spike Lee a pass on
0: this. I I think he can do whatever he wants and if he wants to make the Can award ceremony
1: a little less stuffy, more power to him. I'm guessing Titan is probably not a very stuffy choice if we're just going off of 2016's Raw, The Debut from Du Corneau, a favorite of yours, Josh. She is is this true? Only the second woman to win the Palme d'Or? I mean, that seems insane, but The sort of insanity that, yes, is probably true. The other woman, of course, Jane Campion for your beloved The Piano. Good enough to win the Palme d'Or, but she can't make your top five beach scenes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are technicalities. Other winners at this year's Cannes. There was a tie for the Grand Prix. The second place prize, Asgard Farhadi's a hero. And compartment number six from Finland's Juho Kuosmanen. Best director went to Leos Kareks for Annette. That stars Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. Best Actor, Caleb Landry-Jones for Nitrum. He plays the man who murdered 35 people in the 1996 Port Arthur Massacre in Tasmania. And Best Actress went to Renata Reincev in Joachim Trier's The Worst Person in the World. Some movies to add to our radar there, Josh. Oh,
0: great lineup there. Yeah, I I can't wait to get into the second half of this year. Hopefully a good
1: number of these will be getting... U.S. releases before mm-hmm. the end of the year. Another good lineup, our World of Wong Kar Wai Marathon. And next week, we will get to the movie that introduced him to many of us here in the United States, 1994's *Chunking Express. Quentin Tarantino loved the movie so much, he started his own distribution company, Rolling Thunder Pictures, to get it released in the U.S. Along with *Chunking Express, we'll review something else. We think there was a Critic screening this week of the Green Knight that was on the docket. I wasn't able to make it. Josh, were you? It's actually tomorrow, but I think it's you still
0: have a conflict. So I, do. I don't think we're gonna be able to do that one. Uh yeah, I'm gonna go check it out and I'm sure we'll discuss in some matter at some point on this show. But so that means we need, yeah, we need to fill in something else. Are you, you know, Sam suggested the Nicolas Cage film, pig.
1: Yeah, on air,
0: on air production meeting. I'm kind of with him on that. I've only heard despite the laughing at the trailer that I experienced mm-hmm. last week at the Music Box. Um,
1: I've only heard good things about the film itself, so I'm yeah. kind of on board with that. Not just good things, raves. Yeah. About Pig. Many critics I trust saying it's one of the best films of the year. So, we could definitely discuss that and I would certainly prefer to do that over old. We yes, we're clear out. on that. Yes. We could talk about Matt Damon in Stillwater, directed by Tom McCarthy. I think I'd still lean towards Nicolas Cage in Pig. There is another one that's pretty inspired. Sam went back and looked at our top five list when we did one of our year-by-year countdowns. We did the top five films of 1994. Now, at the time, I said that Wong Kar-Wai's Chungking Express was the best movie of that year. And Josh Larson, contrarian that you can sometimes be, Mm. Not only said that Forrest Gump is worthy of the top five, you said Forrest Gump is the best film of 1994. Now, I couldn't really argue with you because I also recall being a big fan of that film. I haven't seen it since I saw it twice in theaters in 94, but I was a fan. And Sam wondered if we should have a best of 94 throwdown. We see how we still feel about Forrest Gump, a little sacred cow. Up against Chunking Express and maybe you would actually have to admit to the world that I was in fact right and the Wonkar Y film is a superior movie.
0: Well, Adam, first we must clarify because the sound of film spotting listeners' heads exploding is already distracting me. Okay. <laughs> I can hear Did it in I the say future. wrong? No. We made this the Pulp Fiction Memorial List. I think we both agreed True enough. that Pulp Fiction was the best film of ninety four. And we have okay. so two. <laughs> Yeah, I think we had a good discussion about, you know, I have some qualms about Tarantino in general. I brought them to that. But just as a pure burst of artistic talent, we named Pulp Fiction the best film of 1994. Now, yes, Yes. further down the list, there were some differences. Um, You know, I did watch Chunking Express for that show. So I wasn't just going off of, you know, memory of a decade or two earlier so i feel fairly good about that assessment i know it's not cool to like forrest gump it hasn't been cool for quite a while but i'm a little bit of a zemeckis apologist in a, on a lot of his films i'm willing to you know revisit forrest gump again it doesn't sound like the most pressing assignment in my life right now um definitely excited about seeing chung king express
1: again so yeah. sure open to it we can oh, talk about the, it the world doesn't need to know how we feel about Forrest Gump, Josh? A second time? Yeah. I mean, probably not. years later or whatever it is. I think, okay. we, I think we both might have revisited
0: it for that list or no. You think you haven't seen it since 94?
1: Well, you know, it's all a blur to us at this age. This is true. But yes. I Good don't point. recall re-watching Forrest Gump. I feel like I've seen scenes over the years, but I don't recall watching it from start to finish. So that wouldn't be a bad excuse, but right now we're probably leaning towards the Nicolas Cage movie. You can weigh in. You can nudge us in one direction or the other. Feedback at filmspotting.net.
0: Also on next week's show, we'll have results and feedback from the current deeply flawed film spotting poll, which asks, what is the best movie set in the Middle Ages? Now... Yeah, most of our polls are deeply flawed. Why is this particular one flawed? Well, according to listeners, because we did not include among the options films like Andre Tarkovsky's Andre Rublev, 1986's The Name of the Rose, that one stars Sean Connery and Christian Slater, or the 1922 silent film Haxon, which explores the theory that witches of the Middle Ages suffered from the same hysteria as turn of the 20th century psychiatric patients. Adam, I know Haxon is, I mean... Probably every other time we're just talking casually, you bring up Haxon. So I don't know why you didn't mention that for the poll as an option.
1: No, it is a blind spot. I don't know that I have seen... The Name of the Rose, either. No good excuse for that. Andre Rublev was a blind spot remedied many years ago here on the show. The first ever Overlooked Auteurs Marathon from 2005 or 2006. Producer Sam, then co-host Sam, and I discussed Andre Rublev's Tarkovsky. Of course, Tarkovsky, and Overlooked O'Tour only to us at the time we started film spotting. You know, I know why
0: you didn't see The Name of the Rose. 1986? It probably yeah, looked was like fan- fantasy to
1: you. You fantasy, were like, I don't need, totally I don't need any of that stuff. There was probably swords and maybe yeah. some cloaks and I didn't need that. No. Nope. Right. The options we did give you 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood, 1981's Excalibur, Mel Gibson's Braveheart, The Passion, of Joan of Arc, Bergman's The Seventh Seal, one of my beloved beach scene movies, and Monty Python and The Holy Grail. The Python so far. Maybe not surprisingly, running away with it. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment over at filmspotting.net. This week on
0: our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part two of their Summer of 69 pairing. They had to do this one. Look at Questlove's Summer of Soul, which we both loved, Adam and Parrot, with 1970s Woodstock. Have you... You probably mentioned it when we talked about Summer of Soul. Have you seen Woodstock? Adam, because no, this is seen okay, it. yeah, me either. So, um, I don't know if I can get to this episode until mm-hmm. I cross off that blind spot next week, though. This one I can listen to because I'm planning to see the new Anthony Bourdain Doc Roadrunner. I was talking to my sister, her husband, tonight, and they're both very interested. So, we're hoping to do a double date, catching that at the music box this weekend, and then. They're pairing it with Terry Wigoff's Crumb, which I have seen. So I do like that from the Next Picture
1: Show, folks, mm-hmm. Roadrunner and Crumb. Does that work for you, Adam? It works for me. But of course, now that I know so much more about both Summer of Soul and Roadrunner and their respective controversies, Josh, maybe they should have found movies to pair them with that have been charged with being inauthentic or factually incorrect or otherwise ethically challenged. I mean, I touched on during my Roadrunner recommendation, and I still do recommend it, how you can really wrestle with the way Morgan Neville handles the end of Bourdain's life and specifically his relationship with Agia Argento and how much of the blame potentially for his suicide the movie seems to put on her. And then a day or two after that show came out, erupted the whole AI controversy where yes. we get some of Bourdain's voice in the movie, despite the fact that he never actually said those words himself. And I just read last night, Josh, that there's an issue around Summer of Soul, that the whole thing about how it's been sitting in a basement for 50 years apparently isn't completely true. I haven't done a bunch of research, but apparently that's not quite the case.
0: Yeah. From what I understand, because we just talked about it on the Think Christian podcast too, because I can't, I'm never sick of talking about Summer of Soul, but um, a guy I know who's you know had some experience in the music industry basically said it's more complicated, which I think we acknowledged. Like we we didn't act like there was one guy who just sat on this footage and kept right. it from the public. But um, this friend I was talking to said you know there were attempts, but there were um, rights issues that held it up. So it's not like this was you know criminally held from view but I think our point still stands that there are systemic reasons why a documentary about black artists didn't have doors opened for it or Mm. or footage of black artists even famous black artists didn't have doors opened for it as happened with Footage of white artists at the time. I mean, I think anyone who knows this country at all can see that there is a reason this didn't happen, but maybe it's being oversold in the marketing
1: a little bit. That might be what some of the controversy is about. The next picture show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. One way you can support our show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon, $5 a month or more, if you're feeling so inclined, gets you ad-free episodes, gets you early show downloads, at least as early as we can get the show done, and monthly bonus shows. Here in July, coming up, we are going to discuss the second James Bond installment, and according to many of our listeners, the best James Bond installment from Russia with Love. Now, someone very close to both of us recently watched from Russia with love and sent me a slack in which he tried to significantly lower my expectations. Uh, Who would this person be? That might be our producer, Sam. He said, maybe we just need to take it down. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Meanwhile, either way, we've got to do this. We got to record this next week. You do know we're running out of July, right, Adam? Okay. Well, those are details. I don't want to think about right now, Josh, but meanwhile, more and more people are writing in saying, I think you'll really love from Russia with love. So I don't know who to believe. It's not like Sam's ever been just really wrong or completely off base before. You know what I usually do, Adam? I, I believe the movie. Believe the movie. We are going to put that on a t-shirt, Josh, and Good. I think sell many of them as well as our bonus episodes you get exclusive access to our monthly trivia spotting events. Our next one is August 20th trivia spotting 13 going on 30 August 20th at 7 PM central time. I don't have a date yet for when those tickets are going to go on sale, but it's soon. And if you're a film spotting family member, you will be notified when they are on sale. We can't wait for that. We'll have some great returning captains and some great new captains as well. I'll remind you that sometimes we really surprise you last trivia spotting a couple weeks ago. Bing Lu, Joshua Altman, filmmakers behind Minding the Gap and the new documentary coming out, All These Sons, they joined us. They had a great time. We all had a great time. Become a film spotting family member and have a great time with us. Patreon.com slash filmspotting. Let's get to Massacre
0: Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene.
1: did I miss something? Are we are we going into battle? Lady, there's something out there, something underneath that sand.
0: Yes, well, I'm hoping to find a certain artifact, a book, actually. My brother thinks there's treasure. What do you think's out there?
1: In a word, evil. The
0: Bedouin and the Tuaregs believe the Hamunaptra is cursed. Oh, look, I don't believe in, in fairy tales and hokum, Mr. O'Connell, but I, I do believe that one of the most famous books in history is buried out there, the Book of Amun-Ra. It contains within it all the secret incantations of the Old Kingdom. It's what first interested me in Egypt when I was a child. It, it's why I came here, sort of a, a life's pursuit. And the fact that they say that it's made out of pure gold makes you no know, never mind to you.
1: You know your history. I know my
0: treasure. That was Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss in 1999's The Mummy,
1: written and directed by Stephen Summers. Along with that massacre, we reviewed Black Widow, Summer of Soul, and Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move. We were so ambitious that show. So, why that scene from The Mummy? Here is Devin Jolly Jack Boot, or you could call him Josh Larson is my muse, Wombold. He's in <laughs> Long Island City, New York. Get in line,
0: Devin. I don't remember the last time I got one of these immediately off of the first line, so I had to write in. A family favorite and a legit fun action-adventure film. Wait, why wasn't this in the 9 from 99 series? Tie-ins, I'd have to think, are the long-awaited return of Brendan Fraser in No Sudden Move— and the criminally underutilized Rachel Weiss in Black Widow. I'd agree there. I'm sure you were also thinking of how Universal tried to make a cinematic universe for its monster movies, The Dark Universe. But the latest version of The Mummy was a notorious critical failure because there wasn't enough Brendan Fraser in it. If they continue, perhaps The Invisible Woman or She Wolf of London will take the Black Widow spot in the UDU Phase 4. Oh my gosh, got a headache. Devin goes on speaking of franchises, you're probably also thinking how the mummy was directed by Stephen Sommers, the same director who brought us G I Joe, The Rise of Cobra, the first film in the g i j c u. <laughs> okay, yeah. I think I got that right, which continues this week with Snake Eyes, a film whose trailer preceded any screening of Black Widow that anybody attended
1: this month. I eagerly await your review on this Friday's episode. maybe that with Chunk King Express. Josh, what a pairing there you go. Edwin prevention expert Arnoden from Asheville, North Carolina, says the main tie-ins are your discussions of new films from stars Brendan Fraser, No Sudden Move, and Rachel Weisz, Black Widow. But The Mummy also features a perilous quest on par with Zola's and is set in the past, much like Summer of Soul. You're welcome, Edwin says. Good work. Here's James Imploding
0: Pageant from Belleville, Illinois. Rather than look for some far-flung other tie-ins, I'd like to join the, I'm sure, legions of people informing you that The Mummy is not only a good movie, but a great one. It's got perfectly calibrated performances, an old-school look that mixes practical effects and amusingly dated CGI, and a mix of romance, action,
1: horror, and character-based comedy. It remains the best Indiana Jones knockoff on the market. Not every listener who enters Masquer Theater includes a tie-in or makes a comment, a quality judgment call on the movie in question but we did only get one person josh who wrote it and said you're all wrong the mummy's not really that good well clearly they are in the minority and therefore themselves wrong adam (laughs) well we did despite their wrongness include them in the film spotting hat kind of brimming for massacre theater film spotting hat josh reach in and pick out this week's winner our winner is michael green he's from dover delaware What a run for Michael Green from Dover, Delaware. Gets included in my setup to A Clockwork Orange last week. And this week, Josh, wins Masquer Theatre, gets a t-shirt. You don't get a t-shirt when I include you in a setup. Congratulations, Michael. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting shirt. Broadsheet journalists have described my impressions as stunningly accurate. Well, they're wrong. I've not heard your Michael Caine, but I assume it would be something along the lines of, My name's Michael Kay. That is where you are so wrong. We move on now to this week's Massacre Theater, one in which you will be donning the accent and one in which, Josh, we have changed the names. Sam has suggested names. Usually that means that's another hint if you are picking up what we are laying down. I am not currently picking up what Sam is laying down. I'm not sure what these names are supposed to signify and I'm sure I will feel silly about it. Shortly, yeah, I'm I'm
0: not following either. But you know, Adam, I just I read the script. That's what I do. Exactly. I'm, I'm just true to the text. So I'm a little worried. You know, with Brendan Fraser, I had to lower the register. Mm-hmm. I, now I got to go high here, plus the accents. I mean, mm-hmm. this
1: is a this is a tough one. Here's here's a hint by way of an insult. This guy is a charisma machine. I don't know how you're going to bring it, Josh. Uh, okay, well. <laughs> With that, I mean,
0: is is that how Billy Wilder used to direct? <laughs> Maybe.
1: Maybe. More, okay. more Hitchcock, probably. We'll see what we get. Okay. I'm just really trying to, to pump you up here. You started off. I'm going to give you the action. I don't know if you're ready, but are you? No, go. And action. Hey, ahoy there. You surf too? No, goodness,
0: No. Lord, no, I'm just drifting around, you know, getting in touch with the ocean and stuff. It's, it's really pleasant. It was.
1: Yeah, Uh, I'm going to head in.
0: Before you go, actually, Nick, I wanted to tell you, I was listening to Anna's iPod the other day, and amidst the uh, interminable dross that's on that thing, I found one track that I quite liked. So I checked what it was, and it was actually one of yours. And it kind of reminded me of a dark, gothic Neil Diamond.
1: That's like, exactly what I was going for. Right, Yeah and scene, scene. Uh, you not know i had bad, it josh i
0: had it to the last that yeah yard, that was that was like yeah, too scandinavian yeah, i lost a too it there too
1: scandinavian and and even even with the dross you went a little valley girl oh crap you went a well, little valley girl but too bad we don't get worked. second takes on film spotting no we do not and i will say this maybe this will be another hint the actor i'm portraying i think is quite a good actor mm. but He also generally has just the right kind of charisma level. Yeah, I was going to say, like, that's about about the range I can hit in most acting scenes. So that was all intentional. Oh, yeah, it was right in my wheelhouse. If you know what film we massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, August 2nd.
0: The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. I never knew it could be like
1: this. Nobody ever kissed me
0: the way you do. Nobody?
1: No, nobody. Back into our top five movie beach scenes with Deborah Carr and Burt Lancaster in their iconic, yes, we'll use that word again, beach makeout session from 1953's From Here to Eternity. Josh, your number two, which I'm sure you picked not only because it belongs on the list, but because you wanted to shame me yet again with a movie I haven't seen. No, no, I I, I
0: didn't know that, didn't want to do that. It was just, I couldn't deny it. I mm-hmm. mean, this is, you had Planet of the Apes, uh, the iconic one, which you kind of feel like you're going to have to put on a list like this. That's mine here, rolling in the surf from here to eternity. Laura Larson put it succinctly on Twitter, at Prairie Laura You can't not have From Here to Eternity. You're right, Laura. Probably should have been my number one. But it is Burt Lancaster, Deborah Carr. He's a sergeant based in Hawaii in 1941. She is a captain's wife. She's stuck in this loveless marriage. And they've begun an affair so intense, they don't even notice at all when these waves start crashing over them as they are kissing in the surf. It's one of those movie moments. I think, Adam, even though you haven't seen the film, you you know this sequence so well, right? From Mm -hmm. Oscar montages or other sort of collections. Yeah, totally. Exactly. The parodies. I mean, that is, it's just omnipresent. But what makes the actual scene itself, what got it to that point? What makes it so iconic? I guess, you know, these are two pretty attractive people. There's a basic appeal there. That could be it. It's certainly dramatically filmed. Director Fred Zinneman's camera, I love how it begins on the water, not on the couple. And kind of pans from right to left, following the waves as they rush to shore and spill over the couple. But for me, it's more than any of that. I think this scene lands as hard as it does because it is this brief moment of pure pleasure between them. And maybe pure pleasure in the whole movie. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, but this is a film that chronicles all sorts of romantic and psychological distress. This takes place on the eve of the attack on Pearl Harbor. So, you know good times are rare here and for a few brief moments we have one and yet even this pleasure doesn't last it's this is thought of as a romantic scene and people probably remember it as oh well this must this must be like after the surf rolls on them, they have to cut away because we can't see, you know, at this time, what is going to happen next. But actually, it turns from ecstasy pretty quickly to bitterness. And this is when Lancaster turns jealous when talking about cars past. Nobody ever kissed me the way you do. Nobody?
1: No, nobody.
0: Not even one? Out of all the men you've been kissed by?
1: Now <laughs> that it takes, I'm figuring... How many men do you think there have
0: been? I wouldn't know. Can't you give me a rough estimate?
1: Not without an adding machine. Do you have your adding machine with you?
0: I forgot to bring it.
1: Uh, Then I guess you won't find out, will you?
0: (sighs) Maybe I already know. During their argument, I do like how the crashing surf in the background It suddenly seems less passionate as it did in the beginning and more aggressive. It it kind of, because of what they've been saying to each other, that we associate that sound with anger. So this is definitely a classic beach scene,
1: if probably a bit more complicated than people remember it for. Can't wait to sometime catch up with From Here to Eternity. It's only been out for, what, 70 years? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, maybe a little bit more. I will still say, great pick, Josh. A little less iconic, though, certainly a scene, my number two, that has as deep a place in my heart as any classic scene. And I will call it the seaside visits that we get in Greta Gerwig's Little Women. I said Moonrise Kingdom was my only truly kind of joyful scene in this entire top five. Well, Little Women sits right in the middle because Gerwig gives us really two scenes smashed right up against each other so beautifully. And it starts with this seaside revelry. The family really at its peak. Alexander de score is twinkling underneath. The sun is so bright and vivid, and the sea is so blue. And the March family, the girls with their dresses, they're all wearing pastels that just match the water in the sky so perfectly and it is this day of pure joy that also showcases every one of the sisters in her element you've got Amy flirting and drawing you've got Meg kind of reveling with the man who's going to be your future husband Joe bickering playfully with Lori while also kind of carrying the weight of her family and bemoaning the eventual departure of Meg to get married to that man and they're flying kites, Josh, and they're skimming stones and they're playing badminton. It it could not get better. And as we watch them all running gleefully along the shore, the final pair is Joe and Beth, hand in hand. And just as they exit the frame, the editor, I think it's Nick Huey, he cuts. And now Joe and Beth are back in the frame. Except they're sitting. And We know just from the colors that it's a different time, that we've flashed forward in the narrative, and that everything has changed. Their clothes are drab, the sky is drab, the beach itself seems almost gray, all of the joy is gone. And what we're reckoning with, and what they're reckoning with, is that overwhelming sense of joy is gone seemingly forever and can't be recaptured. It's a, it's a thing of the past. This is that scene where then we have Joe and Beth really confronting Beth's mortality while also confronting Joe and her inability to write anymore because of the weight of the family that she really carries on her shoulders. I didn't see this in the clip when I watched it online today. And unfortunately, I couldn't find a version of it to watch in time for the show, Josh, but I swear, maybe I'm confusing it with another movie. I swear that that scene also ends with this really lovely kind of shot of the beach and the sand just rippling away. And there was something about the, the metaphor, even in that shot Gerwig's eye for that suggesting this kind of, this kind of retreat or this kind of surrender, this, this sense of, of time passing and change being something that they are really being forced to confront. I, of course, adore this movie, and I love that scene. One of the things that makes it work, too, is not just where (laughs) the cut takes place, but the music fades at just the right moment. It's exactly that moment in the transition where we are now ahead in time. The score cuts out. There is no longer that, that twinkle and that revelry. Yeah,
0: I don't remember either... If um, there is a
1: separate scene later,
0: but the most visually potent image from Little Women, from Gerwig's Little Women is of Joe and Beth for me on the beach with the wind blowing behind them and rushing the sand past them towards the water. Yep. Um, So it's, yeah, it's incredibly arresting and, you know, symbolically evocative in the ways that you talked about. It's a, it's a really good pick. All right, we're at our number ones, and mine comes from Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, his fictionalized ode to the domestic worker who cared for Cuaron and his siblings in Mexico City in the early 1970s. This um, memory of her is played by Yalitza Aparicio in Roma. I struggled with how much detail to discuss here because— just on the off chance a listener has yet to see this brilliant film. It was my number two of 2018. I don't want to spoil it because this is another ending scene. It's the culmination of everything that uh, Quaran, as the filmmaker and this fictionalized family feels about this character, Cleo. And so I'll try to tread lightly here. But basically, watching it again... Even just watching this single scene separate from the rest of the film, it hit with such a wallop um, to me. And it just brought back all those floods of emotions and associations that, again, you as a viewer, Koran as a filmmaker, and the characters here have for Cleo. Basically, the mother is taking the children along with Cleo, who is Aparicio's character, on this vacation to the ocean front, And here they've gone to the beach to swim. Koran captures it in this lengthy single take. His actors again, like daughters of the dust, almost in silhouette. Um, he's using black and white. This is all shot in black and white. The sun is low behind them, so it's just this. On it, on the surface, it's this beautifully evocative image. The drama builds slowly, and again, I'm not going to detail it narratively, but I I will say what happens thematically. Basically, this sequence is the ultimate summation of the film's view of Cleo as this secular saint. This is how Quran remembers the woman who cared for him as a child. It's how he wants to honor her. At the same time, and it was kind of criticized, right, that it was idealized. Some people said it it idealized this woman. But this moment is crucial. It's a crucial retort to that because it involves this touch of confession on Cleo's part, that she makes at the very end of the scene that totally humanizes her. It it, it brings her down. If she was an angel before, she's brought down to Earth in a way that makes us as viewers just love her all the more. And then the hug that we get to hold all of this together on the beach, the water rolling up towards them, it's an all-time movie hug, Adam. If we ever get to that list, I'll probably revisit it here and then bring this up again. Mm -hmm. I would love to break things down even more, but like I said, I hope it'll just act as a tease for anyone who hasn't watched Roma yet. And it's right there on Netflix. It's still sitting there on Netflix for you. I think sometimes we think of Netflix as just like this dross of, I don't know, like reality TV stuff and series. Um, but there are great films like Roma still there, too.
1: Sorry, I'm just reacting to the fact that you just used dross in a sentence. Oh, is that, is well that the right done. word? Was that the right word? Did I misuse I, that? I think so. I think the character in the scene we massacred this week used is it Is that correctly. where I got I think, it? Okay. I think you stole it from there that There we character. go. See? <laughs> well done. You said it packs a wallop. It packs so much of a wallop, I can't believe you actually had the nerve to revisit it. As much as I would like to watch Roma someday, I'm not sure I'm ready to watch some of those scenes, that one included. Yeah, it's a lot. It is a lot. Well, my number one's a lot. As well, it's a scene of total chaos set on a beach in World War II. But no, it's not saving Private Ryan. And it's a scene where we see 300,000 or so British soldiers and things on fire and smoke billowing. But it's not Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, it's Joe Wright's version of Dunkirk and my beloved Atonement from 2007. Yes, from Little Women to Atonement. I just have this warm feeling about this top five list this week, Josh, two of my all-time favorites. It is that five-minute tracking shot. And what really makes it special, beyond obviously the technical accomplishment, is the scale of it and the utter absurdity of the imagery. It's actually even crazier than I remembered it, and I haven't seen Atonement since 2007, I was admitting to my daughter Sophie, who of course I told her she has to watch this movie. I was admitting to her though that I kind of don't want to watch it. I just want to have the experience I had with it at the Toronto Film Festival in 2007 where I was just utterly entranced by it. But to get back to the absurdity. Pages of books flying in the air as they're they're being burned it seems. Horses being shot at point blank range. A guy at one point is on a pommel horse. There's a Ferris wheel in the background. There are two men wrestling. There is a chorus singing a hymn. Though most of the people we see are just kind of waiting for the inevitable, which is death. This is all imagery, by the way, that we really do not see in Nolan's version of Dunkirk. And then at the core of it is James McAvoy's character searching Staying in motion as if maybe somehow if he does stay in motion, he'll find some solution, some way out, some way to get off that beach. It's it's actually this primal, visceral thing that I think we could all relate to, even as you're looking around at the chaos, at the terror, recognizing how insane it all is, knowing that it's where you're probably going to die. If you've got that urge to stay alive and to get back home to get back to the person you love, then staying still isn't really an option. You're always going to fight. And he is, he is fighting. He's looking for something. It's heartbreaking and exhilarating. And what makes it stand out so much is it's like no other war scene or beach scene that I can think of maybe other than apocalypse. Now in terms of giving us a portrait of war in which it feels like you've moved through some kind of surreal portal, where you're you're just glimpsing the complete breakdown of order and reason and civility. And I mentioned the director, Joe Wright, cinematographer here, Seamus McGarvey, the steady cam operator, obviously so crucial to this scene's success, Peter Robertson. And according to what I read today, they actually did it in part, at least, at least according to the filmmakers, they did it in part out of necessity, not because they were trying to really make it this bravura spectacle, but because they they needed to capture the scene in a way where it wouldn't have required so many different setups and shots and takes. Now, I guess I'll believe them, even though you think about all the time and energy it obviously took to get all those people in their proper places and to choreograph the camera work the way that they did. Of course, the cinematography here, is a big reason why it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Cinematography, and it also won for Best Musical Score, another crucial part of this scene. And for whatever it's worth, one expert I read online, one World War II historian, said that it probably captured it actually fairly realistically, in that it was chaos, and everyone was so thirsty because they had no water. They had no access to water. So they basically just started... Uh, pillaging from all the cellars around town and they were all just drinking wine and everybody was hammered while they're riding on the the merry-go-round or doing all of these rambunctious things. So it seems watching it that it couldn't possibly be authentic and perhaps it actually was. Doesn't really matter one way or another as far as my experience with the scene. It's more obviously about what it suggests and kind of those metaphorical almost or existential implications of the scene i just think it's a wonder
0: yeah it's distinct from uh christopher nolan's dunkirk in its absurdity those details that you discuss we don't really get that in dunkirk um and i i've thought like what what is more what is more impressive that uh joe wright can include like this Dunkirk sequence in the midst of a whole other film or that Nolan can build a whole film around this one sequence right Um, they're they're both really amazing and obviously Dunkirk Nolan's is one that I considered I think I I think I set it aside just because I couldn't pick the whole thing takes place on the beach I couldn't pick one one beach scene but I did consider it
1: well those are our top five movie beach scenes we'd love to hear your picks feedback at filmspotting.net and speaking of Ones we considered, Josh, any other honorable mentions? Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, Truffaut's 400 Blows, another ending scene, right? You talked about saving Private Ryan. I wanted to mention a matter of life and death, one that I just, to my shame, caught up with within the last year. But Andy Harris on my Larson on Film Facebook page said this, David Niven, thinking he's crash landed and woken up on an endless beach at the shores of heaven in a matter Mm -hmm. of life and death. Completely idyllic, he's surprised to see his own shadow, delighted that there are dogs in heaven, and then the Lancaster bomber flies over and he realizes he's alive. Brilliant filmmaking from Powell and Pressburger, all wrapped in Jack Cardiff's Technicolor sheen. So a good pick there from Andy Harris. I, of course, thought about Moonlight. Um, There's a couple Mm -hmm. to choose from in that Barry Jenkins film. How about Elaine Mays, The Heartbreak Kid? In honor of the late, great Charles Grodin, he meets Sybil Shepherd's college student on the beach on his honeymoon. That's a great scene there. Um, listeners also suggested some beach horror. It follows and us. Those are good options. And then I think the beaches of Agnes, you know, the, the title alone should get that Agnes Varda Doc yeah. a nod. And one more here, Adam, a nudge for you to catch up with Barb and Star. Go to Vista Del Mar from this I year. I still need to see it. Jamie Dornan dance sequence there involving seagulls. I think he climbs up a palm tree at one point. I mean, this is your Fifty Shades of Grey guy, Adam. You get you yeah. got to see this.
1: Yeah, I do. I considered many of the ones you listed, so I won't rename them. Eli Price wrote in and mentioned the climax beach scene from the John Michael McDonough film Calvary. I do think that's a very good choice and a very good film. A couple you didn't mention, Josh, other Adam favorites, The Master, the opening of that film, the scene with Ruth, Tommy, and Kathy in Never Let Me Go. How about two endings? Yeah, I'm a sucker every time. I'll watch the Shawshank Redemption ending when it comes on TBS. And I also, of course, really love the maybe controversial, we'll just call it ambiguous, much discussed, though I don't think it's ambiguous at all, ending to Jeff Nichols' Take Shelter and another one, maybe even I thought this was too grim, Josh. I couldn't do it, but it's certainly memorable. How about the beach scene in Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin? Oh, yeah, that is very rough. One of those scenes that just stays with you for a few days, if you're lucky, right? But I do, I do love that film. And maybe I needed to get that out of my head. So then I went to the great, running on the beach scene Apollo Creed and your guy Sly Stallone <laughs> you didn't Rocky you didn't Rocky 3 come on come on Josh come on you're just trolling me now yeah I am actually just trolling you again those are our top 5 movie beach scenes for more top 5s check the archives at filmspotting.net slash lists
0: i Some of the trailer there for 1990's Days of Being Wild. It's the second film in our world of Wong Kar Wai Marathon. You may be able to tell even from the audio that Days of Being Wild was being marketed as a follow-up to Wong's 1988 debut film, As Tears Go By, which had elements of the kind of violent thrillers that Hong Kong cinema was best known for at the time. But even Wong's debut was still very much a Wong Kar Wai movie. We talked about this. We described it last week as being more concerned with image and mood than plot or theme. Days of Being Wild really doubles down on that. It's set in 1960 Hong Kong, and it's filled with tragic romance, unrequited longing, centers on a
1: playboy, Yudi, played by Leslie Chung, who has a reputation for breaking girls' hearts. We also learn that he's haunted by the knowledge that the woman who raised him, a former prostitute played by Rebecca Pan, isn't his real mother. Maggie Chung returns, this time as Su Zhen, one of the women who has a brief relationship with Yeti. And Andy Lau shows up as a policeman who shows sympathy and has some romantic feelings for Su Zhen. We were surprised last week at just how much the Wong style was there right from the beginning of his career in As Tears Go By. Days of Being Wild to your point earlier, Josh feels very much like a first pass at the kind of thing we'd see a decade later in, in the mood for love. In fact, days is the first part of an informal or unofficial, maybe trilogy along with in the mood for love and 2004 is 2046. I was thinking about these two films and comparing them and how audiences would have reacted to them, knowing that as tears go by was a big hit. And it was this film filled with all this violence, this kind of gangster picture despite all of the the Wong kind of flourishes and, and all of that longing. And I couldn't imagine that this went over very well with all of the audiences who really responded to As Tears Go By. In the Criterion Collection box set, I read today that that is the case. Not only did audiences in Hong Kong hate it, audiences in Singapore hated Days of Being Wild so much, Josh, that they slashed there's cinema seats in Is
0: that a common so, thing there?
1: I, I don't know. But Days of Being Wild provoked that response. I want to know if you destroyed your couch at the end of this movie or were you in the mood for it? Well, I'd seen it before, so I put the plastic covers
0: on the couch Good. so that they would withstand my anger. Uh, no, I mean, this is, a, this is an amazing film. Um, and it was fascinating to watch it again after having seen As Tears Go By. That was the first time with that film for me. I, as I said at the top, you know, that it was very interesting to read this as a debut. It felt so much more like a debut because it was less controlled. Then as tears go by to me, it was only, you could see Wong mm. trying to figure things out. And it's not that he was trying to figure out how to make a feature. Um, it was that it's, it's kind of like, he's trying to figure out how to make a Wong Kar-Wai feature. And obviously there are those elements of his style. As we've said, that's what we talked about with as tears go by, but it was within this genre setting. Um, it was within this, you know, violence. And these other elements that you would expect, and that apparently audiences preferred and expected, and here you get something that is pure Wong, um, but it's not quite as fully formed as we'd get in something like uh, we'll see in the future films Mm -hmm. that we will get to. I still think it's great. I'm I'm constantly going back and forth which one, if I had to rank them, which we'll probably do at the end of this exercise. You know, where would I put as tears go by? Compared to, and
1: I had the same conversation. We're I mean, it's sure really which one we like better. It's
0: really close. Right. Because yeah. they're so distinct they're, mm-hmm. to me. I almost lean like there's something in me that loves a genre exercise that also manages to pulse with idiosyncrasies and an artistic vision that appeals to me almost more than like this pure burst of a singular vision. That, which mm-hmm. is what I think we get with days of being wild. So maybe I would have slashed a seat. I don't know. I, at this point, I just know I like them both. It's the tension for me that I think is what makes this movie really interesting, though. It, it's that you can see there is some genre excitement here, especially at the end. We get some bursts of violence at the end, right? That kind of come out of nowhere, and we can maybe kinda talk comes about out of nowhere. Yeah. yeah, how that works for us. Um, it's not as embedded in the material as it was in his previous film, right? Right. But what that gives us is this tension between that and the languid yearning that would become his trademark that the movie mostly gives itself over to. So, so these are, this is a movie that's electric and it's exhausted and it goes back and forth uh, and both ways are kind of compelling. I don't know that they completely meld in the ways that they will in future films, Um, but it's still, you know, quite an accomplishment for as a second film.
1: Yeah. And Not to belabor that point, whether or not it feels more like a first film than even As Tears Go By. I think it does feel like a second movie to me and that I would say it actually is more controlled visually than As Tears Go By is, but it's even more experimental or perhaps you could use the word disjointed narratively. And that is where it kind of offsets that control of the overall aesthetic. And also I think just the fact that as tears go by is so locked into its gangster kind of crime milieu in that genre, it makes it feel like something less distinct than what we get here in being wild. Even as I felt like I was watching brief encounter (laughs) as made Mm. by the guy who made As tears go by, you Hmm. know, so it's not as if there isn't some of that that influence or some of that similar tension and longing that we have seen in other really great pictures. I like what you said about the tension, because that really is the right word for this movie in terms of its pace, in terms of the encounters and interactions between the characters almost all of the characters all the time even when they're being pleasant with each other there's there's tension and it's the tension that exists in between the things they say in the the spaces between the things they're saying to each other in the pauses that that come in their conversations It's it's all about that space between what they say and what they do and maybe how they really feel and what they really can't express. There's people like Yudi, who is very withdrawn and withholds and doesn't doesn't really express himself, though he does it more physically. And you've got other characters who can't help themselves, but say everything that is on their mind all of the time. So there is there's that tension there in this Wong film as well, and you get it in the friction that comes in these close-ups. Something I alluded to earlier when I was talking about Moonrise Kingdom. We don't really get the shot reverse shot aspect. It's more deliberate in its framing, where he puts these characters within the shot, and there is no space between oh, them. They're so They're intense. talking to each other. <laughs> and yeah, there's no there's no space on the outside of the frame. They. They fill the entire frame up, and that leads to a sense of intimacy and closeness, but it also does have this kind of spark to it that makes you think at any point it could it could combust, which in this film it usually does. I think the performances are interesting to think
0: about in terms mm-hmm. of this film, too, because you know, you could be worried that Maggie Chung is starting to be typecast a little bit because she's, as she was in As Tears Go By, a little bit demure, um, a little bit, I don't, passive is too strong of a word, but but certainly a lot of the action is being, um, you know, forced upon her. A- and you see that here. She's very good, but it's a similar role. I love the spark that Karina Lau brings as Lulu slash Mimi. This is a, a, a dancer who Yudi, the Leslie Chung character, um, takes up with after he has kind of moved on from the Chung Maggie Chung character and the way she gives it back to him. I think, you know, we've seen two male characters here now in Leslie Chung's and Andy Lau's in the previous film who are... Boorish at their best, you know, uh, assaultive and almost on the verge of being abusive and yeah. probably abusive, really, right? um And here we get in Karina Lau, this dancer, someone who's going to give as good as she gets, and that brought a real spark to the movie. I, the moment where she tells, uh, it's not Yudi; it's it's actually his friend who asks her, "What do you do for a living?" They're in the hallway of the apartment building. And she doesn't answer him. She doesn't say I'm a dancer or even start dancing. She says, turn on the radio. And he does. And the music comes on and then she does this dance. And, and that's the sort of um, the friction back that we're getting where the male characters previously, you know, were providing all the friction. It was a one-way friction. Then we get Karina Lau coming in here and is like, okay, but you're I'm going to give it back to you with this sort of seductiveness and charisma and an attitude as well. And that kind of raises the game for everybody involved. So uh, I think the performances here are all good, but but she kind of jumped out at me as, you know, something new, as much new as you can have two films in.
1: Well, there's something that struck me as very stylized about most of the performances and maybe Leslie Chung's in particular in that, not that he's just sort of aping Brando at all, but there's a sullenness and there's a real... Kind of deliberation to every movement and everything he does or says that is very, to me, formal in the same way the movie is. And I think you can say the same for a lot of the other characters. Again, it's those pauses, it's a lot of conversations that don't at all feel like conversations any of us would maybe have in quote unquote real life. 1960年 Again, I think the whole thing is very stylized in that way, and you alluded to this, but I wanted to really ask you how you felt about Leslie Chung, not his performance, the character, I should say, as is, is Yudi, yeah. because this is the second movie in a row where we've had a main character, a main male character, who seems pretty irredeemable and is often at times unlikable, and I'll say that even though I'll admit that, you know, Andy Lau's character and his tears go by is someone who's always defending his friend and clearly has feelings for Maggie Chung's character. But by comparison to Yudi, Lau and his tears go by is like the guy you want your daughter to marry, I'd say.
0: Oh, well, they're both. I mean, please don't send either of them my way. Right. <laughs> you mention Brando. Did you think at all of James Cagney and White Heat? As sort, sure. of, as sort of this charismatic sociopath. We just watched that recently um, as part of our noir marathon. And he came to mind during As Tears Go By. And then I'm watching Leslie Chung and thinking, here we go again. We've got another, another Cagney, this kind of like sociopath who, and here in this film, has mother issues, right? <laughs> and, and I also think, yeah. though, that is maybe... What makes him as interesting as he is is that detail we get about and those scenes, really powerful scenes between him and his adopted adoptive mother, mm-hmm. um, and the relationship they have, which is so twisted about she's holding the information over who his real mother is over him so that he doesn't just throw her aside. I mean, how many how many things are going on there? The fact that she's gonna do that? And the reason she's going to do that is because she knows he would ditch her. I yeah. mean, that's just like so hang on to him. You're right. So many levels of sadness there, but the fact that he pursues and goes to seek his real mother in the Philippines, I think that, you know, you wouldn't say that redeems his character. No, but I think it it provides a level of understanding for the why the reason he is so flippant with the women in his life and why he would treat them that way um, and not be emotionally vulnerable enough to form a real relationship. So yeah, these are two really complicated, unlikable characters in a lot of ways that Wong and the performers make still um, fascinating
1: and, and understandable as well. I also want to touch on the use of color in this movie, which I think is dramatically different than what we saw and discussed in as tears go by in particular that film has all these touches of red and really utilizes that color as a color of passion of love of blood it it symbolizes all of these things and here the palette of this entire movie is this very muted green. I'm not sure I remember seeing anything as sort of bright or vivid as a red used in this movie. It actually, in a way, reminded me of, and here we go with more references, but it reminded me of the great Vim Venders film, Paris, Texas, in terms mm. of that green glow. But without, ironically, considering we're talking about Wong Kar Wai, as much bright neon that we get in the landscapes of the American West that Vim Benders depicts. There is, just like in that masterpiece, though, a sense of this environment as somehow beautiful and ugly at the same time, lacking kind of vibrancy. I think of the green. I don't know how you reacted to it or how you would describe it. The best I could come up with is there's something about it that makes the entire proceeding a little bit unreal. Yes. A little bit elusive it somehow heightens the disconnection between these characters. I wouldn't say this word I saw pop up a few times in relation to this movie today. I wouldn't call it dreamlike necessarily. I'm not sure I've ever recalled that color from any of my dreams, but it does maybe suggest that these characters are in a sort of limbo. They are caught between States. There is this dichotomy that we've gotten so far through two films of really good behavior and really bad behavior and being a good man and a bad man and love and hate and pleasure and pain. And these characters all seem sort of just stuck in this murky middle. There you go. Murky. To me,
0: it's like they're underwater. And Mm -hmm. so there's a green, the green comes into play there, there's also like sort of a blue, a blurry blue mm-hmm. that I feel I associate with this film. And this is maybe a good point to just kind of acknowledge a lot of this set, the world of Wong Kar Wai Criterion set that we are watching. You know, these are, I, I these are works that he's revisited and adjusted things like the color particularly I don't think either of us are doing a frame-by-frame comparison no. to kind of talk in detail about that. Having seen this before, I remember the visual scheme these in terms of colors to be similar to what it is here. So I, I don't know that any major changes were made. So that's just to put that out there because I know we have some listeners who are you know have even mm-hmm. more familiarity with one version over the other. Um, but I think you're right in describing it as this green and, and these elements of blue as well. And this sense of dislocation that you're describing is is dead on. It's it's they're kind of floating. They're in an in-between state. And these are partners who in the narrative are flitting from one to the other. They're mixing and matching. They're never quite fitting. Um, the movie follows them as well. And this is where the camera comes into play. It kind of floats along. Similarly to the smoke from all of these cigarettes, you know, between them, mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting to the movement that we see on the screen. I talked about the dancing sequence with Lulu, but a lot of times the characters are still like in repose and the motion in the frame is coming from curtains, maybe blowing or, mm-hmm. or a fan that's spinning or the rain Here, Here's where we go back to being underwater. The rain is, it feels almost constant. In this film, right, it's con- it's constantly coming down. Mm-hmm. So these characters are are out of place in a way. They're drifting. Um, they're also out of time. You kind. You mm-hmm. I mean, time is a recurring motif here, it right? We have clock. so many shots yeah. of clocks, um, references to what's happened in the past, and you get a sense that you know time for these characters in particular at this phase of their life. Um, it's a trap in a way. It's moving mm-hmm. too slowly. They they have desires that are proceeding faster than time is moving. But it's also a curse because each second that, pass, that passes is something they've lost. It's a lost moment of youth and, and something that could have been, and often it's in these relationships, is no longer there. So mm-hmm. this all ties into what we've been talking about, longing and unrequited love and these themes. But it's interesting that even the colors you
1: mentioned, these, these deep greens and blues evoke that as well. And- Going back to this idea of them being in this kind of limbo, think about how often we even meet in this movie another character. Can you think of one off the top of your head? Now, we meet lots of characters because the ensemble becomes fairly sprawling. The story is introducing us to new characters and new relationships, and you're not even sure if you're going to ever get back to leslie chung and to maggie chung and their characters at the beginning of the film though we do eventually come full circle that said it's not as if when they walk the streets they're teaming with people or oh no everything's empty i love that they're not interacting really with anybody it is as if they really are inhabiting their own space they are together and yet not together right and it's as if they don't Maybe even any of them have actual jobs. I guess the the policeman, we, we know he supposedly has a job at least patrolling those streets. But otherwise, everyone else just kind of exists and they are fully defined only by their feelings of longing, by their feelings of what's missing about what they want, what they can't get. And that is that is really striking is that this movie takes place in Hong Kong in the 1960s. And yet you watch it and you're like, where is is this what what world could this be I actually watched it as well thinking about another reference here a painter and that's Edward Hopper because Mm. the shots themselves and sometimes the way we do see people set against these kind of lonely urban landscapes reminded me of Hopper but also the walls and that use of the green color it's as if they're a canvas There's a painterly aspect to this film because of William Chang's production design and the costumes, because of Christopher Doyle's cinematography, where it feels as if there is just a texture to this, again, that made me feel almost like it was all against a canvas. I did quickly do a Google search today, Josh, just to see if I was totally crazy. And there are a few articles about it. I don't know if Wong himself has ever made the connection or talked about Hopper as an influence, but I did find the very first search result was a tweet from May of last year where a user named Iwa Ferdinand said Edward Hopper and Wong Kar Wai and had four still images, two Hopper stills and then two stills from Wong Kar Wai movies. And you can you can definitely see the Similarities there. That's what's really striking about this film is the way just through some of those camera choices, through the production design, the use of color. He really does put us in a time and place that feels wholly, wholly unique and also overwhelming. Yeah, the Hopper connection makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's is—it's
0: the loneliness. I mean, the barrenness of Hopper's frames of other people, aside Mm -hmm. from the one, two, maybe three that we see. It's exactly what we get here. At night, um, you know, no natural lighting. It's all from streetlights or fluorescent signs or something like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as far as the characters that we meet, I mean, how about that we get Tony Lung in the final sequence here? there you go. Right. Speaking of disjointed or out of nowhere, (laughs) this guy we've never met, except it completely fits. He's a this is a guy buffing a young man, buffing his nails, combing his hair, getting ready for what? A night of being wild. And it just it it just suggests that, you know, these characters we've met, all of them are going to come and go. But this restlessness of youth. This drifting is never mm-hmm. going to change. Now, maybe that's why audiences, you know, ripped their seats apart because they're like, right. who the heck is this guy? Who is this guy? And I where, don't where are the him. others? And why don't right. we know the end of their stories? Yeah. But for me, you know, it's uh, thematically
1: it works and I, it's just a lovely touch. See, that's because you're so thoughtful and eloquent. Meanwhile, I was I was almost ready to slash my seat. I was just like, <laughs> "No, what, come what, on. <laughs> what movie is this setting up?" And I think I did read in the Criterion set that it's there because Wong was anticipating actually using that ending as a springboard to a sequel. It it was supposed to be part of another film that never materialized, but I will I will accept your case, Josh, that in fact it works as a piece With this movie, Days of Being Wild is currently available on the Criterion channel, as are all the titles in the world of Wong Kar Wai Marathon. Next up, 1994's Chung King Express. You can get more information about this marathon and all of our past marathons at filmspotting.net slash marathons. That's our show, Josh. If you want to connect
0: with us on Facebook and Twitter, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at our website, FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the FilmSpotting poll, what is the best movie set in the Middle Ages? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net
1: slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter. Out this weekend on digital, you can see over on HBO Woodstock '99: Peace, Love, and Rage, featuring our friend and occasional film spotting guest, the great music critic Stephen Hayden. In limited release, I can't wait to see this one too. Val, a doc about Val Kilmer, culled from thousands of hours of footage that Kilmer himself shot over the last forty years. I'm guessing he, like you, thinks Iceman's the hero of Top Gun, Josh. Justice for Iceman. Yeah. Out in wide release, Joe Bell. This is a movie starring Mark Wahlberg as a father of an openly gay teenage son who takes his own life. It's directed by Rinaldo Marcus Green, who made Monsters and Men. And also, Snake Eyes, the G-I-G-C-U is upon us. (laughs) G.I. Joe Origins. You can also do what I'm not going to do. You can see the new M. Night Shyamalan movie Old, and you can tell me. What I'm missing? Feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week on our show, we will get to the next film in our world of Wong Kar Wai marathon, and we're going to debate it. But it sounds like maybe Nicholas Cage and Pig will be on the docket. Oh, film man.
0: Spotting is produced by Golden Joe DeSoto and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Cat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at
1: WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. Now I know that an all-animal edition of Massacre Theater is in our future. (laughs) I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
0: I'm not doing that again. <laughs> it's not going to become a bit. That was incredible.
1: Stop, Sam. Don't write it into any scripts. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at FilmSpottingFamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at FilmSpottingFamily.com.